Welcome to the Independent Idaho Podcast, a production of the Living Independence Network Corporation, or LINK. My name is Jeremy Maxand, and I am the Executive Director of LINK, as well as the host of the show. LINK is a regional center for independent living, and our mission is simple, to empower Idahoans with disabilities across the lifespan to live the life of our choosing. You can learn more about LINK at linkidaho.org. Our guest today is Marilyn Sword. Marilyn is a lifelong Idahoan, the former executive director of the Idaho Council on Developmental Disabilities, and is currently the coordinator of the Idaho Caregiver Alliance. The ICA is a statewide coalition of individuals and organizations focused on expanding opportunities for respite as well as other caregiver supports across the lifespan. Marilyn and I talk about her time growing up in Idaho and her work to support caregivers of all kinds. Let's get into it. Marilyn, welcome to the Independent Idaho Podcast. Thanks for taking some time out of your day to talk with me. Absolutely. I'm glad to. You know, we we work a lot together and have a lot of conversations, uh, it feels like, throughout each week. And I don't I have not had an opportunity to just kind of ask you questions about who you are and what your background is. I, I feel like I've known you a long time, um, or at least known of you. I don't know, probably 20 years ago I was uh, you know, in, informed enough to know exactly what you were doing and working on. But I, I, I certainly remember Christine Pisani and the DD council back then and, um, and, and the work that you did. And so this is, this is exciting for me and I've looked forward to this conversation for, for a while now. Um, Thank you. Yeah. And, and there's so much for the two of us to talk about and why don't we just start, um, with the part that I know the least uh, about and that is kind of your background like where where are you from where did you grow up what was that like and and how did you how did you end up in Idaho if you if you aren't from Idaho oh I'm from Idaho okay okay perfect yeah I've been here uh, all my life I uh, uh, grew up on the kind of in West Boise I went to uh Schools that are no longer there, Franklin Grade School, West Junior High, and then I'm a graduate from Abora. Um, and my family's been here for several generations. And um, my father was a blacksmith, and um, he worked in a business that his father started in 1917. So um, I just have deep roots here on both sides. Um, and then when I graduated from Bora, I went to what was then Boise Junior College um, for about a year and a half. And then um, then I just kind of wanted to explore, I guess. And um, I was I found I was finding that that uh, 
I had more interest in education. You know, there are lots of social things, partying and <laughs> exploring. And so I left school and I uh, had um, a few jobs, but I landed at one. I, I rented cars at Hertz Rent-A-Car at the airport. And interestingly enough, that's where I met both my husbands. Wow. Um, my first husband was a, a local pilot. Uh, small, small plane pilot. And um, he, of course, he was in and out of the airport a lot. And so uh, I would see him coming and going, meeting his, he and his, he and his wife were divorced and he had kids that would come in and he would pick them up at the airport. So we kind of were, you know, we were in the same environment. And um, then um, I, I, I married him and we were together for eight years until he and his son from his first marriage were, um, were killed in a plane crash in Uinta, in the Uinta mountains of Utah in 1977. And, um, he also had a daughter with whom I'm very close to this day. She lives in Bend and, um, but that, uh, while I was working at Hertz, um, there was a young man who, while I rented cars, he washed them. And um, he is a couple of years younger than me. And he, um, when I was widowed, um, he, he and I had maintained a friendship while I was married. And um, when I was widowed, he brought a couple of buddies over and they helped me because I had about 15 acres of pasture and cows and horses and things. And he and his friends would come over and help me out. Mm -hmm. And we ended up going out and getting married. Mm -hmm. And so that's my current husband. And we have been married for 44 years. Wow. Nice. So nice. that's kind of, I, I have two sons. I have a son from my first marriage who lives in Melba. Are you talking about me? And a, and a son from my second marriage, and he lives up by the bench. I mean, on the bench by the depot. And I have three grandchildren, one in Melbourne and two in Boise. And then I have two step-granddaughters from my stepdaughter in Oregon. And those two step-granddaughters both live in Oregon, one in Newport and one in mm. Portland. So I have this kind of wonky family. Aren't those the best? Yes, I, I love it. I love it. I have a great um, extended family in many directions, mm -hmm. but it, it really is wonderful. What? Oh, I I, I just, go ahead. No, I, I have to ask what, um, what, what, what was it like growing up? Were you in Boise? You were in Boise living as a, yes. as, and what was that like growing up? What did you do as a kid around Boise at that time? Uh. What would a summer you know, day as a kid? You know, I would I would play in the yard, in the alley behind my house. Across the alley, there was a, a kid named Oscar who was my age, and he and I would play cars in the dirt in the dirt in the alley, or I would ride my bike down the street to my friend Sonia's house. My dad 
I said with a blacksmith, he made me a bike. Mm. This bike weighed probably three times what I did. <laughs> and I mean, I had to lean it up against a tree to get on it. It was so heavy. And, uh, or we would catch polywogs in the ditch across the street. I mean, it was just um, life on the bench in Boise. I, I walked to school, to Franklin School with my friend Judy. And um, we lived in that house, which was on Orchard Street, mm -hmm. corner of Orchard and Gage. We lived in that house until I was in the eighth grade, at which time uh, we rented a house also on the bench while my parents built a house on Cole Road, mm -hmm. off of Cole Road. And I'll tell you, at that time, we thought we were way out in the country. What are we doing way out here? Mm -hmm. And um, that's right. And now that house is still standing, but it's really close to the, to the Boise Town Square Mall. Mm. So that tells you what country felt like when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. Is right, in, off, you know, kind of in the middle of things now. So it was, you know, it was a pretty typical, just um, nothing remarkable. Um, childhood and what your dad was a blacksmith and so did he do yes. that at home or did he have a shop somewhere no he, my grandfather started a business called boise Springworks in 1917 and they built springs automobile springs um leaf springs and they had a forge and i mean it was just this big dark huge building um, with these super hot ovens and hard work, you know, um, and my dad did that and, and with his brother after their dad died. And then there were a constellation of other um, people who came through. And then my brother started working there. And now his son and his grandson worked there. So it stayed in the family since 1917 it was split off oh i don't know a few years ago they split off the leaf spring business from the ornamental iron and the uh, a lot of um, metal fencing for mm. corrals and metal fabrication for businesses and homes that became my brother's business and now my his son and grandson's business. So it's called Boise Metalworks now, oh, sure. but it's in essence still the same, still the same company. What well, you know, you think, um, you think a, a business like that would, could disappear. And, and in reality though, based, based on just the new architecture and aesthetic and, and all the fancy stuff we see in these new homes, like it probably has grown substantially. Well, it's, it's changed. It's grown and changed. I mean, if they were still just making leaf springs for cars, I don't think that would go very far. But they, uh, there's a lot of work in metal fabrication and, you know, the new um, water jet cutters. And yeah. I mean, there's yep. just all sorts of computerized stuff that I know really nothing about. But it really has evolved with the times. And so it's been uh, a successful business. It's moved a couple of times. It's not in the same location it was because that area was um, kind of run over by 
uh, the connector. So they had to relocate to West Boise and now they're up off of Federal Way. Mm-hmm. What about your mom? My mom was, uh, like is true of, of many moms of that age, my mom was a stay-at-home mom and um, taught me to cook, taught me to sew, got me involved with 4-H and Girl Scouts. And um, she was a very talented seamstress. Mm. And, um, but when I, after I had grown up and um, I don't, I don't know whether it was, I was 18 or 19, she and my father divorced. Mm. And then she um, went to work at um, a laundry in Boise and she was their seamstress. And um, then she also did some work assembling um, fly fishing rods. Oh, wow. And um, then she became, my mother was a caregiver more than anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was a caregiver for her three children, but she was also a caregiver for my father. They got back together. They remarried and she cared for him. She cared for her brother, her younger brother. I'm not younger, but I mean, she was the youngest, but um, of her two brothers, the younger of her two brothers. She cared for her uncle. She cared for her mother. Wow. All in her home at various times. So she was really, um, that was her identity, was as a caregiver. Wow. Uh, Last question about your mom. What? Um, what meal did she cook that you remember with the most fondness? Like what brings you back? She's, you said she taught you to cook and I'm curious what, what, what was something that you remember that was really just sticks with you? Well, you know, we did not eat a lot of fresh vegetables. I just think most most families didn't then they ate a lot of canned food Mm -hmm. or a lot of homegrown things i think i remember she had this cast we had a lot of casseroles so she made this casserole called a six-tier dinner and i still have the recipe in my recipe box and in her handwriting oh wow she also taught me to make this steamed christmas pudding that her mother made and it's something that I make every Christmas. So I think those are the things that the two things that kind of make me think of her. And what's in the six tiered casserole? Oh, it's carrots and hamburger and rice, onions. I can't remember now. It's not something I make very much, but I, it just is, mm-hmm. it's, it's part of my childhood, the fabric of my childhood. Mm-hmm. And I, and I love the fact that I still have, I still have the recipe that she wrote out on a card. That's fantastic. So, okay. So you said you, you quit school to go gallivanting around <laughs> and I, I'm assuming at some point you ended up back in school. Um, or did you, did your life take some other trajectory at that point? No, I, you're absolutely right. It did. I did end up back in school after my, my husband died. I had my 
our son was five. So he was going off to kindergarten and I went back to school. And uh, I took like, I was on the long-term plan. Mm -hmm. I took uh, like a class a semester to get my bachelor's degree in political science from Boise State. And that, I got that in 1981. Mm -hmm. And then, um, then I worked and went back to school and got my, um, my master's in 2001. I graduated the same year that my youngest son graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. So that was, um, both of those were kind of long-term degree earning experience <laughs> and they were both Boise state. And then what did you do? Had you, were you working at that time or? Well, when, when, uh, when my first husband uh, died, I was doing a lot of volunteer work with the mental health association. And so I kind of, then a friend and I became co-directors, co-executive directors of the mental health association of Idaho. We had a little office on state street up above Capitol lumber. (laughs) And we did, we, you know, we, scraped along like most nonprofits do, you know, trying to get the word out, trying to um, advocate on behalf of people with mental illness. I know in 1981, when um, John Hinckley shot and wounded President Reagan, Mm -hmm. there was a huge outcry across the country to get rid of the insanity defense. And David Leroy was the um, mm-hmm. attorney general at the time, and he was leading the charge in Idaho. And I, the Mental Health Association and the Bureau Chief for Mental Health in the uh, Department of Health and Welfare, we worked very hard to hang on to the insanity defense and kind of go against this tide that was um, pushing the other way. And um, at one time in that campaign, uh, during the legislative session, um, the, the Nightline, ABC Nightline TV show uh, sent, a, sent a reporter to Idaho to cover it. And so that was my, my you know, 10 seconds of fame <laughs> was on that Nightline show arguing on behalf of the insanity defense. Now, was I successful? No. <laughs> The legislature removed the insanity defense. Dave Leroy won, but um, I had um, a little bit of conversation with Ted Koppel. Oh, wow. (laughs) Well, that must have been hard. I mean, the early 80s, that was that was was the whole push to deinstitutionalize people occurring at that time. Or did that happen after it was during and after? And, uh, you know, a lot of that kind of came out of the the more populous states with these huge, big institutions, New York, New Jersey, California. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a lot of uh, a lot of stuff came out of California for deinstitutionalization and uh, the Community Mental Health Act and trying to build community infrastructure to support people as they left institutions and uh, try to establish jobs and homes and um, lives in the community. 
um, a lot of progress was made. A lot of mistakes were made along the way. And I think as institutions were downsized and closed, I think we did a remarkably poor job all across this country mm-hmm. of uh, establishing the community support network that needed to be there. Yeah, I think we're still, yes, I think we're still we feeling the yeah. repercussions of that decade. Yes, later. And, and in fact, I think I feel today like we're going back. Yeah. Like there's um, people are seeing um, that don't those people belong in institutions, you know, and so I think it's it's an old battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, was reading about the connections between the civil rights era and some of that and how once um, there was a once the civil rights act passed, there was kind of a push to begin defunding a lot of public programs because people didn't want certain people didn't want to invest money in programs that would be going to certain groups of people. And that, that wave of deinvestment disinvestment, um, happened to all these programs all the way through the eighties. And we still have this legacy of not wanting to invest at a time when our middle class was at its highest, we turned Mm -hmm. around and started, um, taking money out of these, these systems and mental health was one of them, the prison system, another, but, um, we, yeah, we, people were shooting themselves in the foot, I feel like for, and we're still doing it. Yeah. The mental health movement was, I think was doubly hard because it, um, people with mental illness, their illness was not visible. Mm -hmm. And so you had to combat the, um, the stigma. Mm -hmm that goes along with this um and and there was so much misinformation about mental illness Mm -hmm. and categorizing and blaming and fear and so you had to deal with that as well as building some supports so it was uh, and i didn't really realize how different it was for people working with people with a system for people with mental illness compared to a system for people with developmental disabilities until I made that transition. Mm -hmm. And that's, that was the transition that you made from the mental health. Yeah. I worked, I worked in, um, after I left the mental health association, I was hired as kind of a liaison to families and consumers by the Bureau of Mental Health and Health and Welfare. So I worked with each region had a, had a family support group, a family support council. There was a state mental health planning council. There were um, there were a lot of programs that were that came about because of uh, the um, energy and vision of a man by the name of Jim Antrim, who was the bureau chief for mental health at the time, hmm. and he would write federal grants for community support programs, and they were established around the state. And then he did the same for for children's programs. But then when those grants ended, the state never stepped in and picked up the the funding and the development of those. So they just kind of went away when the grant funding went away. And so I was working on those grants for him. And... um, I don't know if you know John Watts, 
but he was the director of the of the DD council for a long time and he was a personal friend and so he he came to me and said I understand you're working on time limited grants grants that will end and I said yeah and he said why don't you come to work for me and so uh, I did I went to work as a program specialist at the DD council and that was in about, I don't know, 87, something like that. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was later than that. And um, so I worked for him for, I think I worked, it was later than that. Cause I worked there until 94. And in 94, I quit because I ran for the state Senate. Mm, that's right. And I couldn't be, I couldn't be a state employee. I thought, I thought being a state employee gave you a lot of insight into how state government runs. And that would be an asset if you were a legislator. But of course, this, that was the year that Newt Gingrich had his contract with America. Mm -hmm. And all the Democrats just went down in flames. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, um, got a job at what's now Janus. It was Mountain States Group running um, a grant called the Idaho Head Start Public School Transition Project. And basically it was a project uh, that followed, that worked with children and their parents after they left Head Start through the third grade to still try and pro to provide that same sort of support for the child and family that's in Head Start. And then we were looking, we had programs in Burley, Twin Falls, Pocatello, Post Falls, and Sandpoint. And then we had, uh, we contracted with the University of Idaho, the Center on Disabilities and Human Development at the University of Idaho to run the control groups and those were in Lewiston and Boise. And um, so it was really, it was really a fascinating project. We were one of, I'm thinking, 31 Head Start transition projects around the country. And we were the only one that was statewide. All the rest of them were just like in a single school district. But um, towards the end of that, I tried to write some grants to keep it going because I thought it would be really valuable if you looked at those kids and their families through junior high, through mm -hmm. the eighth grade, to see what their reading and math scores were and how their family uh, functioning stayed. I, I thought it would give you a lot more, a lot richer data to follow the kids further than the third grade. And we wrote a grant to the Albertsons Foundation, but it wasn't funded. But I did write an early Head Start grant hmm. with a, a colleague at Mountain States Group for um, Coeur d'Alene and Sandpoint, and it was funded. So today there's still an early Head Start program in North Idaho that's run by Janice. Hmm. That's excellent. Those programs, um, if you're tuning in and don't know about those programs, the my, my, my assessment is that if you had a limited amount of money and you were going to throw it at education, that throwing it at education early when kids are yep. learning to read is the single most important thing you can do. You can do everything else, but if they can't read, 
the probability somebody is going to end up unemployed in jail, like the list of thing of horrible things that happens. Uh, it, it's pretty, it's pretty impactful. The investment in, in young yes. people's education. It's, it's, it's remarkable. Um, and I'm and sure this was, this was uh, I think this was a good model because it, it was engaged with the parents as well. Because mm -hmm. often Head Start parents can be parents who are low income, struggling, and maybe and maybe kind of disenfranchised from school themselves. Yeah, and so school was not necessarily a welcoming place. So that's what we tried to build. Yeah, is this partnership between teacher and parent in support of these young kiddos? Mm -hmm. So that's uh, yeah. I I'm a big I'm a big fan of Head Start. I think it and and Head Start like programs. So, but and and then after I did that, I went back to work for the DD Council as the director, mm. and um, worked there until 2013, when I retired and Christine took over. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of um, did some contracting work with the. Uh, with the disability and aging community. So it's kind of moving your direction. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did, um, Lee Flynn was then uh, the policy person at AARP. Oh, yeah. And she approached me about putting together a caregiver task force to kind of look at the issue of family caregivers in Idaho. So we oh. did that for about six months. And then Catherine, I don't know if you know Catherine Hansen. Catherine Hansen was the executive director of Community Partnerships mm -hmm. of Idaho, yep. um, a provider agency of, of developmental disability and mental health services. And um, at that time, uh, the Department of Health and Med Medicaid was moving into uh, managed care for people duly eligible for Medicaid and Medicare. And they... Uh, had a contract with Blue Cross. And so Blue Cross uh, had, a, Catherine had a contract with Blue Cross to provide the care coordination piece of that. And so I worked with her and a couple of people on her staff to build a, a company with within community partnerships called Care Plus. And those were the care coordinators that uh, did the kind of in-home visits and hands-on care coordination with not just the member, but also their family. And it's kind of that whole person approach to, to healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so we, we did that for a couple of years. And um, then I, um, uh, the Commission on Aging put out an RFP to do a um, statewide assessment of Idaho's long-term care system. And so I, my husband and I have a little, little um, LLC called Frontier Group. So we applied for this and we got it. Hmm. And um, it was interesting. I learned later that we were bidding against Sarah Taves at Boise State. Uh. <laughs> uh, but it turned out to be really a huge, much bigger job than we had anticipated. And so for a, about a quarter, the first quarter of 2015, we were very involved in 
talking to people around the state, AAA directors, um, SILs, um, Medicaid, just uh, to, to um, determine kind of what, what's the picture that we have of long -term, the long-term care system in Idaho and where are the gaps, where are the strengths, what can be done. And when you say when you say long term care, um, so some folks might immediately think of like uh, like a nursing home. As nursing a, home. But it's 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 more diverse than that. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe maybe you can just describe a little bit how when we say long term care, we we mean a whole suite of potential services and supports. You're so correct, and it's so it was. The services provided for the, from the area agencies on aging, so home-delivered meals, um, just fit and fall-proof programs, a variety of things. We're talking about things that the independent living centers uh, do around the state to support adults uh, living in the community uh, with disabilities. It included Medicaid as the payer. Uh, it included um, the Commission on Aging as the flow-through funder for the area agencies on aging. Um, I'm trying to think of who all, but it's, it's, it, it, it's facilities, it's home-based care, it's, um, you're absolutely right. It's the whole gamut of things that wrap around people who uh, need long-term supports to live at home. And um, so that, that was done under the under the heading of no wrong door, which we still have. Mm -hmm. But do we really? Mm -hmm. uh, I think the whole intent of no wrong door was to be just that. Uh, that you, if you enter through one door, you don't have to just enter through one door, but if you enter through one door that's connected to all the others. So it's the, it's the old aging and disability resource center concept. Okay which I don't, I don't think we've really ever achieved that in Idaho. I think the area agencies on aging have a piece and the independent living centers have a piece. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they fit together and work together better than other times. Mm -hmm. But um, the, I think the intent of ADRCs was for that to be merged. And I don't, I don't know that that I don't know if that's true anywhere across the country, mm -hmm. but here in Idaho, um, the area agencies on aging refer to themselves as the aging as the ADRCs, the Aging and Disability Resource Centers. But I think you can't you can't be an aging and disability resource center without the disability side, which is what Link and the rest of the independent living centers provide. Yeah, we certainly, um, I, <clears throat> I don't know that there's any, any formula or manual that says this is how the, you know, the area agencies on aging and the centers for independent living are supposed to work together. It's very much, it's very much driven by relationships and, and who's, you know, who, who knows who, and then, and through these relationships of trust and then cross training. So we we talk quite a bit with like, you know, Raul over area region three, mm -hmm. AAA mm -hmm. about, um, everything from, Hey, we want to make sure that our information and referral specialists each know kind of what each of our organizations do. So we can, 
we can hand people off in a friendly, warm way um, so they don't get, you know, lost in the system. Exactly. And, and everything from that sort of thing to, you know, we've talked about MOUs um, in the event of a disaster and their office gets impacted. Like, like, do they have an alternative office to go to? And, and one of our office spaces is open open to them in the event of a disaster or something, right? So mm-hmm. there are all these relationships, um, sometimes formal, most of the time informal. Right. Um, but you're right. It's, it's, it is a network and we constantly have to be kind of refreshing those relationships and understanding because all of what we do changes and adapts and lots yep. of, lots of moving parts and staff changes occur. And yeah, it's a never ending battle to, to keep this thing going. You're absolutely, that's exactly spot on. I mean, uh, and you know, we're lucky in Idaho in, in the, in the regard that we have a fairly small population and we have a pretty, everybody's pretty accessible to everybody else. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, you know, uh, we're, we work, I, now I work at Boise state, but that doesn't mean I don't have close relationships with folks at ISU and, um, U of I, Mm -hmm. and we're just, everybody kind of knows everybody on a first name basis. And it really, I think breaks down a lot of the, um, the silos and, the barriers that states with a lot larger population uh find more difficult yeah it would be it would be it would be interesting i think we we are able to get more done with as little resources as we have because of that and if we were if, if we were in silos like some bigger states we would be really in deep trouble we'd be really in deep trouble right and i think it, to, a, to a certain degree, we've been our worst enemy because we have done a very good job mm-hmm. of getting by on almost nothing. Mm-hmm. Then there's the expectation that we shouldn't need more. Mm-hmm. And so that that always kind of haunts us because yeah. we are very good stewards. So talk a little bit about the Caregiver Alliance because all of this, I, I'm assuming this statewide assessment, doing the landscape analysis of, of what programs and resources are out there. This all culminated, I'm assuming, in the creation and the establishment of a new program for Idaho, um, which is a very important program for Idaho. And we'll talk, I'm sure, about the, the, the numbers and the value and just how you calculate the impact of unpaid caregivers. Um, but, but what was that what was the transition from frontier group to the role you have now, or was there a step in between? There was kind of a step in between, but I mean, after I did that assessment, uh, and I, well, I was working with Raul Enriquez because he was then working at the commission on aging and he was the mm. no wrong door guy. Mm. And he said, would you like to, now that you've done this assessment, would you like to, um, facilitate the, the development of a plan? And I said, no, <laughs> I'm tired. That took everything out of me the last three months. So I, I, I handed that off or he, to him and he went to Marsha Brackey, who I'd worked with in other um, meetings and arenas. And she's very capable. She did a great job of, of working with a group of people to develop a no wrong door plan. But then the commission on aging uh, applied for um, 
a lifespan respite grant. And I think the first time they applied was in 2012, maybe, and they weren't successful. And Pam Eliason was the person at the ICOA who was the head, head of that effort. And so the next time it was uh, applied for, uh, it was successful. And what um, the Commission on Aging did, it, a requirement of that grant was a statewide coalition uh, to support the development of respite services across the lifespan. So Sarah worked with Pam, uh, Pam worked with Sarah Taves at Boise State and they had several meetings and started kind of building this coalition. And in, um, I think it was 2016 or 17, I was approached by Sarah to help um, build the co the, that coalition into something more, more concrete. It's still a virtual coalition, but to help kind of build it organizationally, bring other players into the table and so that's what we've been doing. Um, and I think um, we've worked closely with you and a host of other players across the lifespan from AAAs to insurers to various entities in the Department of Health and Welfare and Idaho Parents Unlimited, uh, AARP, just a, a wide range of folks coming around, coming together around the issue of unpaid family caregivers and the, the load they carry as part of Idaho's health and long-term care system that's often unrecognized, but very, it's very dependent on. And um, so much of what we've been doing since that time is, um, kind of raising awareness of caregivers. And it's been great at because at the federal level, the interest in this is growing. There's a growing number of boomers who are aging, mm -hmm. myself included, across Idaho and across the nation. And those folks need, need care. And they don't need to always be in a nursing home or um, a facility of some kind. They need um, support from family, from friends. And so that's kind of what the I Don't Caregiver Alliance does is it says, hey, you have got all these people out there kind of in the shadows who are supporting this, this aging population and the population of people like you, Jeremy, who are people with disabilities living in the community and who have varying needs of support or for access, for um, employment, for healthcare. And it, it's family members play a critical role in that. So that's kind of where we are with the Idaho Caregiver Alliance. And you and I have worked together on, on the numbers. You know, there's a minimum of 300,000 unpaid family caregivers in Idaho, saving two billion dollars in state or federal funds with the with the care they provide for their family members in France. Mm -hmm. And I don't you know, we're certainly not asking policymakers to pay those people, although there's some that would like to be paid because they maybe had to quit their job 
mm-hmm. in order to provide care for grandma. But um, really, we want to have them be recognized, supported, receive training if they need it, and then work with partners on what is the looming issue right now. And that's what you and I have been working on, the direct care worker shortage that the pandemic just brought right into the headlights. It sure did. Yeah, it would be, for those tuning in, I think it's well well worth, uh, I think, emphasizing the coalition that you've been able to pull together. It, it is, you know, I have the privilege of participating in a whole bunch of different calls every week with different groups of people. And the Caregiver Alliance calls are always, hands down, um, the most well-attended, most diverse group of stakeholders and organizations and agencies and advocates. And um, I don't know that you'll find another another meeting of the minds uh, that has as much reach as the Caregiver Alliance Coalition does. It is, uh, if there's another coalition out there that is as strong as this one, I would love to know about it. Um, and it's just amazing that the group of people who have come together on this issue, which I think speaks volumes to the importance of the issue and how prolific the, you know, the, the impact and the reach of this issue is. Um, but then also to the, you know, to the work that is done by you and other folks at, um, the center, uh, at Boise state and the coalition itself, um, there's a lot of trust there. There's a lot of years of experience and there's a whole lot of trust and, and hats off to the work that you all have done there. Cause it's incredible. Um, the, the, the other thing that we hear, you know, and just to put a finer point on it, when we talk about unpaid family caregivers, we're talking about everything from, you know, maybe, maybe a grand, son goes over and helps get the mail and take the trash out and uh, make sure everything's good at grandma's house um, to uh, parents who are aging, who are taking care of their adult children who have significant disabilities. And if it wasn't for those family members, this person or that person getting that unpaid care would have to be in an institution somewhere and they're not in an institution which is far more expensive they're at home with their family and 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 sometimes you'll hear that well maybe they should be in an institution and what's the difference and you know institutions provide the minimal required amount of care to keep a person alive so that facility operators and staff don't go to jail. Like that's literally the minimum standard there. Not everybody, you know, operates at that minimum standard. I'm not going to make a blanket statement about facilities, but when you're in your home with your family, you're experiencing life, you're experiencing love, you're, you're getting to interact with people. There's value to your life. You aren't just, um, put somewhere and housed somewhere um, and and kept alive. You're actually living. And 
And I think we also hear a lot about, well, you know, that's the role of these families. They should be doing this. And the answer to that is they are doing a lot of it and they're doing probably more of it than is sustainable. And for a lot of people, you know, you, we are all getting older and all of us, you know, end up throwing a back out or we end up having to make a job change or we have life changes that impact our ability to continue to care for the people we love. And sometimes you need help and sometimes you need paid help. And right. so I think the big issue that we've been trying to focus on is that relationship between why it's so critical that we have a strong and sustainable paid direct care workforce in our state because the little bit of investment we make in that workforce pays off in the in the billions when it comes to supporting families who are doing this unpaid across the state. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and for some reason it it is such it is an issue that affects so many people but we just constantly have to constantly raise that issue and keep it in the in the in the headlights. Um or we find ourselves where we are right now, and that is an imploding direct care system that um, needs a lot of attention right now. Right. Well, and, you know, the pandemic made it so much worse. I mean, um, and but made it so much more acute. And um, I, I can't help but think people are more aware. But, um, but we have, like, right now, in the in the 2023 legislature we have half of the legislature is new and they are the they hold the purse strings and the policy rules for um supporting or not supporting this direct care workforce and we've got a huge task in front of us to teach those folks what we're talking about some of them may know, they may bring that with them to their new job at the, at the legislature, but many don't. And, and the one thing we know about caregivers, caregivers is they often don't uh, recognize themselves as caregivers. Mm -hmm. And if you've seen one caregiver, you've seen one caregiver mm -hmm. because it's very it, the situation is very individualized. But across the board, um, that relationship that you were describing between a robust, well-paid, sustainable direct care workforce and the family members that they're working together with is just, uh, that's what, that's what is going to be needed to carry us forward. And we, that's at the Caregiver Alliance, that's what we see our value to be is that kind of voice for the invisible family caregiver. And right now, I, you and I have talked about this, but right now we are talking to as many people as we can because um, the funding that we've relied on and have been very grateful for since 2014, I guess, are these lifespan respite grants from the administration on community living that, uh, were successfully applied for by um, the Idaho Office, the Commission on Aging. They got three of these. We've had three three-year grants back to back, and that's what's funded the alliance. 
and the decision's been made by the Idaho Commission on Aging to not apply for another one. The next round of grants would be for five years instead of three years, hmm. but they've opted not to apply for them. So the only people that can apply are Medicaid, the Commission on Aging, or another state agency designated by the governor. So we're continuing to have conversations with um, others uh, about how we might um, find a state agency that could apply for this grant or what other funding might be out there that would um, carry us forward. Because the other thing that is unique about us is our lifespan focus. And you described that, you know, in terms of uh, it could be um, we work with Idaho Parents Unlimited and we work with the area agencies on aging. I mean, this is a, a birth to death um, focus of our caregivers. And so that's who we are um, supporting. And we've been very fortunate to have some funds from Medicaid, their Money Follows the Person program, that has allowed us since September, well, it started in uh, the spring of 2020, to um, uh, demonstrate a navigator, a family caregiver navigator program that is free to any caregiver of of a, a person of any age to uh, get some support, get somebody to listen to them, help them develop a plan in order to maintain their resilience so they can keep providing uh, caregiver to the person in their family. And um, Medicaid has, I think we've, we're, our funding for that is, is uh, secure through the end of 2023. Beyond that, there's we're continuing to have conversations with Medicaid about uh, continuing that. It's a it's a it's a pilot. It's we're demonstrating various aspects, and we're this spring we're going to roll out what we're calling Family Caregiver Navigator Version 2.0. That's having a little bit. We're going to use kind of an uh, an Idaho-based assessment. So we'll um, see how that compares with the data that we've collected since September of 2020. Mm -hmm. So we're doing a lot of things. We have a caregiver conference every year. We have, we're now resuming our legislative lunch where we um, pr provide soup for the legislators while they get to talk with caregivers and find out what the caregivers issues are. So it's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, of we, monthly newsletters weekly legislative updates. We really feel like we've tried to raise the awareness um, about family caregiving and increase family caregivers' participation in a lot of advocacy efforts around the state. Mm -hmm. talk, just talk a little bit about, too, the, what, what, what's a common, particularly for somebody who might be listening or tuning in who's an unpaid caregiver, what what are the common themes that the Navigator Project runs into with, with unpaid caregivers? Um, are, is it burnout? Is it, uh, what, what exactly, what kind of resources are you providing and what are you seeing as some of the common? Um, it's definitely issues? burnout, but it's, um, you know, a lot of it is um, caregivers looking for a break, looking for respite. But that's the, that's, they may come to us thinking that's what they need. 
And after talking with the navigator, they realized that maybe they, uh, it would be helpful for them to have some counseling or it would be helpful for them to um, take the powerful tools for caregivers class to learn how to better kind of incorporate their caregiving uh, responsibilities with the rest of their life. But we also hear a lot of things about um, housing, mm -hmm. transportation, um, access to services, how to how to apply for Medicaid. Um, and one thing in that we learned when we, in the second year of our project, we really tried to expand our outreach into the Hispanic community in Southwest Idaho. Mm -hmm. And we've got two Hispanic, two Spanish speaking navigators. So it's not just translating, it's they understand the cultural differences, the linguistic differences, all the all those factors that go into being able to really communicate with somebody in a different from a different culture. Um, but um, there, you know, they may people may may need legal help. They may need, uh, I mean, it's just the, the range of um, things that people call about very, very differently. A lot of, you know, people will call in and it has to do with um, mental, mental health issues, either for the caregiver, him or herself, or for the person they're caring for. And we all know that the mental health services in this state are wanting. Uh, but the, uh, I, what I wanted to go to with the Hispanic um, services, that, the navigation services that we provide, is there's a real shortage of services that might otherwise be available for the English-speaking um, population, but we really fall short in, in those culturally um, aware and accessible uh, services for other than English speakers. So it's just, um, it's a pretty wide ranging thing. I mean, one of our lead navigator tells a story about how um, a caregiver uh, worked, our navigator worked with a caregiver to, to get her kind of going to the gym and um, getting in an exercise program and taking better care of herself. And she lost 25 pounds. And so, but we can't say that the family caregiver navigator will help you lose weight. <laughs> it, it will, however, if you, if you so choose, provide you with some, some ideas, resources, a warm handoff to others that will help you maintain your health. And um, that, that's, the best that we can do. And the nice thing about it is it, it stays with the caregiver. Uh, a lot of caregivers call in and just want to know what we're about. Somebody told me I should call you, but mm -hmm. I, what do you, what is it you do? Mm -hmm. And then they have a, have an assessment, develop a plan. And then the caregiver is fine. They're off and rolling, or they may be somebody who needs support over the long term. So the, the navigator checks in, with them every three months, are you on track? Do we need to change your plan? What what can I help you with? And if the caregiver needs 
help between those times, he or she can always contact the navigator. And we'll stay with that person as long as that person needs us. And it's free. It's by telephone. But the handoffs to, uh, to services are not a list of phone numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a, it's, why don't you call if you need, you're taking care of your mom with Alzheimer's. Well, why don't you talk with our friend Yvette over at the Alzheimer's Association? Mm-hmm. So there's that personal interface that I think makes it um, very valuable. Got to think that, you know, it, it's the, for a lot of people probably just being able to make a phone call and just have a conversation. That might be the, exactly. be the only person they have felt like they have been able to have a conversation about what they're experiencing because to do that with maybe family members you're dealing with, well, you know, you don't, you, you don't want to make somebody feel bad or put out, or you don't want to increase right. the pressure or turn up the heat. And who can, who can you talk to? And if right. you don't have someone to talk to that builds up and it, it exactly. turns, turns bad real quick. Yep. Yep. Well, I think the, uh, you know, I, we're, I know we're getting to the top of the hour and I, I think, um, I hope if there are new lawmakers or current lawmakers listening, that they understand not just the value that the unpaid caregivers in this state provide and the importance of the caregiver alliance, um, but that they also see, and this is a novel concept, but that there are programs by the state of Idaho that align with our values as Idahoans. We support our freedom and our independence and our liberty. And we support, you know, we, we, we value being good stewards of tax dollars and and all Mm -hmm. of that. And, and I think it's important that these lawmakers understand that this home and community-based services programs that keep people free and in their homes for as long as they want and, and can is cheaper but it also makes sure people are still connected to their community and their families and are able to go to church. They're able to go to the the coffee shop with their friends. They're able to do these things. And that the connection with the caregiver alliance and unpaid caregivers, all of these systems provide so much value, not just economic value, but more important values. And they all are critical in working together it's a, it's a system and you can only take so much from that system before the pieces start to fall apart. And I really just hope that, you know, your message and what you do and the home and community-based services out there and these programs that keep people in their homes, that our lawmakers are listening and that they understand really the bang for the buck that they get from the people who they serve in our state um, that do this hard work every single day. And, you know, we do have an uphill battle, but we just have to keep having conversations and building relationships and sharing experiences with these folks. And hopefully that, that makes a difference because this isn't just lip service. This really is, these are important programs and these are important people doing really valuable and important things. And, and we need more support. We need more, we need more help. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's dollars well spent. And um, I think if, if you don't, the alternative is pretty bleak. 
It's horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. Well, Marilyn, I really appreciate this hour. I know you are one of the most, one of the busiest people I know. Um, <laughs> so I, I just appreciate it. And I will, I will share the link for the Navigator Project and the Caregiver Alliance on this post. And, um, we'll, we'll get that out to as many folks as we can. And Fabulous. yeah. And I, you have any, any parting thoughts or words of wisdom? I don't know that I have words of wisdom, but I want to thank you, Jeremy, for the opportunity to talk about the Caregiver Alliance, what we do, the difference we can make and the importance of, um, keeping us around. It's awesome. I love it. Um, and for folks tuning in, thanks for joining us as always. Thanks for listening to our amazing guests and the work they're doing. And as always, stay independent, Idaho. Thanks, Jeremy.